Wonderful. Shall we uh, come back in together? We're enjoying God in worship, and it's great now to enjoy God as we hear teaching from his words. If you're new to us at King's Church, people love the talk. That's what you should know about this church family. Uh, if you're new to us, we love to teach from the Bible here each week. And we're in a little series uh, called Summer... There we go. My teacher paused. It worked. Yeah. We're in this little series called Summer Songs, and we are just unpacking some of the Psalms as what it is to, to rest and to worship in God. Um, as you'll know, that I'm one of the pastors here, and the pastors do the majority of the teaching, but not every week. And we love from time to time to welcome other leaders in the life of the church to come and bring their gifting to us and to teach the Bible to us. So many of you will know uh, David Rousel. Anne and David moved down to us last uh, autumn or so, uh, and have already been a great, great gift to us. Um, David has joined our team of trustees because of the finance background that he has, which is an unseen and hidden but extremely crucial role. So he's already been serving us in ways that you won't know but are very, very important. But I would love also just to receive and enjoy his teaching gift. Uh, David was an elder for some 20 plus years down in uh, East Grinstead, so he's got a, a teaching and a wisdom to bring to us that I'd love you to embrace and to enjoy. So let's welcome David. Thank you, Philip. Well, thank you, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to just to share some thoughts this morning. Um, you might, you can see up in here that um, I'm going to look at Psalm 51 this morning, and given what Philip's already said about uh, it being a season of uh, re reflection, of, of refreshing, and of worship, you, if you know Psalm 51, you think, on face value, that's an interesting choice. Well... As Jamie said to us last week, the, the book of Psalms is, is just a multifaceted book, and it, it covers the good times and difficult periods. It covers the triumphant and the defeated. It covers times of faith and seasons of doubting. It covers times when we are honoring God and disobedient seasons as well, but all with the same aim, to lead us to a point of dependence upon God, reliance on him, and ultimately praise towards him. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack Psalm 51, which starts with a man who is on his knees before God, but we see wonderfully restored to praise and adoration and worship as he works through um, the, the issues that he's, he's brought on himself, but then God gloriously restores him into. And I also just want to remind you, if you were here last week, then Katie brought a, a brilliant word about chains falling off in our worship. And I just want to remind you of that again today, that as we worship, as we press in to this psalm today, I believe God will release some chains. I believe that whether you're, you're, you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet a believer, then there's some chains maybe that, that God will help you to, to shrug off. But if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe too, there are some things that God will help you to just to shed the this morning just to press back in to a really vibrant worshipful relationship with God. So, so let's, let's look at the psalm. Let's start in those first few verses. And this is David. This is David on his knees with an acute sense and awareness of his own sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now many of you will know what 
brought David to his knees in this way, but let's just a quick reminder. If, you, if you've got Bibles, you might want to look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, um, and I'd certainly encourage you to go and read that afterwards just to get a bit of the backstory here. But it was springtime. David was back at the, um, his, his palace. Um, springtime was a time when, often it says it in, in Samuel, uh, kings went out to battle. David had indeed sent his troops out to battle, but he'd stayed at home. So he wasn't with his troops, but it was that that time, that season. Maybe he was complacent about battle. Maybe he thought, I've had lots of victories. I don't need to go with them. Maybe he was weary of battle. I don't know. We're not really told the motivation, but the fact was his troops had gone. His troops had faced the enemy. David stayed at home. He'd gone up onto his roof. He was walking around. And as he walked around the the, the rooftop, he looked down and he saw this beautiful woman bathing. I suspect that he'd seen that before. I suspect that he'd walked up on his roof before. But rather than just turning around and saying, that's someone else's wife, that's someone else's woman, he pursued it. He didn't turn around. He asked after her. He sent someone to go and get her. And he slept with her. I wonder whether David had been thinking about that when he stayed at home, whether he'd remembered other times he'd seen things perhaps he shouldn't have done from the rooftop. But this time, he'd really taken it too far. He goes on in the psalm, evidently reflecting on what he's done. Against you only have I sinned, he's saying to God. I've done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, what happened then was that Bathsheba found that she was pregnant. She told David, and he suddenly realized there was going to be consequences of his sin. He called, David called Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from the front line, and he tried to encourage him to go home in the hope that he would sleep with his wife and David's adultery would be covered up. But Uriah, mindful of his fellow soldiers, said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to sleep um, in, the, in the doorway. I'm not going to go back and enjoy time with my wife when my mates are out on the battlefield. David's cover-up then went to the next level. Can you believe he actually sent word back with Uriah to the leaders of the army and said, put Uriah on the front line. Put him in the most dangerous spot. Put him in the most fierce fighting. And then when he's there, pull your troops back. It was a death sentence. David had gone from what might be just a casual walk around the, the, his roof of his palace to, to sentencing someone to death, an innocent person to death, because David wanted his wife and didn't want anybody else to know what had gone on. No wonder David reflects in the psalm, Behold, I'm brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. But there's more than David's felt sin in this. As as so often is the case in the Psalms, we see a deeper truth that comes out. And the deeper truth that we we see coming out here is is reflected in a couple of New Testament Psalms uh, uh, verses. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
1 John 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. These New Testament verses underline the truth about all mankind, that inherently we can't live up to the standards of a perfectly holy, perfectly just God. If, if sin is defined as not putting God first, not putting him first in our acts, in our deeds, in our thoughts, not making him the one that we love with our heart and mind and soul, then Yes, all of us fall short of the glory of God. David acknowledges that against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But you might say, well, surely Bathsheba was sinned against. Uriah clearly was sinned against. But the point here is that sin is ultimately and vitally against God as our self-centered attitude, our self-dependence, our pursuit of, of and primary fulfillment and ha- in happiness in anything other than God is counter to his glory and to his holiness and in fact counter to how we were made and created. That first point of being for, for God and, and only for God is reflected back in Psalm 51. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. But David goes on and continues to reflect on his sin. No doubt re- recalling the words of Nathan who confronted David's sin. He told David of a rich man who owned many things, many sheep, many cattle, who, who had a friend come to feast with him. And rather than using one of his own animals, he took the ewe of a poor man, he commandeered it, he sacrificed it, and, and, and they, they used that as, as the feast. David was outraged when he heard Nathan's story. He said, who is this man? He needs to be dealt with. Nathan said boldly, perhaps, to the king, you are that man. The light dawned for David. He was appalled at his sin. And he doesn't try and he doesn't promise to try and do better next time or, or try and make up for his errors by promising service or sacrifice, but he makes the only plea that he can. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise these things. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This is David, God's anointed king, chosen because he had a heart after God. This is the man who is now on his knees before God. David who danced before God in worship when the ark was brought up to the temple. David who was the author of so many other songs in the the books of Psalms declaring the wonders of God, his majesty, his holiness, his worthiness to be worshipped. This is the David who we now see on his knees. This is the David who knew the presence of God. He'd seen and felt God's tangible presence. He'd heard heard God's favor towards him, again through Nathan, the man who now brought God's rebuke to David. How is David feeling? What's going through his mind as he composed this song, as he meditates on what he's done and on the character of God? 
This is where he goes. This is verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a pure heart, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, the stakes for David are huge. He's realizing that he's put his treasured relationship with God at risk. His sin has put a wedge between him and his father God. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David is a worshiper by heart. But he's lost his salvation song because of his sin. His sin was constantly before him. He was racked with guilt. He had no peace before God. But he knows that if God can remove his guilt, then he'll be able to worship again. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He might have got some short-term pleasure from pursuing Bathsheba, but he was now facing the much more serious consequence of a long-term separation from God. But you know what? The amazing thing is we see God's grace and mercy at work. David wasn't cast aside by God. could have so easily happened, but he experienced restoration and reconciliation. Yeah, there was a consequence for his family and for his reign, but he was restored. God had not forgotten his promise to David through Nathan, in which he said, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your own offspring. I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple. I will secure his royal throne forever. You see, again, in this psalm, we have a bigger picture at work in the life of David. There's this bigger, long-term picture going on. Of course, what Nathan was talking about in that promise, what God was telling David, was, was about Jesus, one of David's descendants. And we have this amazing truth that, th- that David is able to benefit from the future act of one of his own descendants, quite amazing. Jesus' accomplishment on the cross, although in the future from David's perspective, was an eternal accomplishment that came back and allowed him to experience the grace of God in the present, in that moment. You know, Psalm 51 again, look at that next level of depth in there. Psalm 51 again hints at some of the specifics of the cross. Of the cross. The father did turn his face away from Jesus because he took all the sin of mankind so that we would know the smile of the father forever. Jesus was cast out of the father's presence in order that we might enjoy his presence forever. So the Bible tells us about sin and Jesus' remedy for it. And and Romans is a fabulous book. It's probably one of my favorites. But um, particularly Romans 5 talks about Um, uh, verse 
6, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then a few verses later, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. That's what Jesus has accomplished. The Bible's using legal terminology. Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses or sins by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's wonderful when you get into the richness of, of what's being talked about here, the richness of what was accomplished on the cross. One single act of sin or selfishness, in short, anything that falls short of God's perfect, holy standing, makes us guilty. But by putting our faith in Jesus, one act of self-sacrifice, when he took on the full punishment of all sin, means that we are legally guilt-free, righteous, accepted, free of debt because of Jesus. That's the truth of the gospel. That's what all of us benefit from. That's what David was able to benefit from in the, in the beauty of the way that God works in the future from David's perspective, bringing to bear that grace on the cross back into David's life. There's no requirement for religious acts, for ritual, but a call to put God first in all that we do, think, and adore. That's the good news. Sin dealt with, penalty paid, because of God's free gift to us. But there is more to this that we need to understand. As Christians, particularly if you've been a a Christian for any length of time, we need to hear this. Sometimes... We do let God down. Sometimes we do continue to sin, much as we try. Unconfessed and harbored sin. You know, our legal standing before God remains completely unchanged. But what happens is our relationship with God is undermined. If we allow sin to get a hold in our lives, even as Christians, we can be guaranteed our long-term salvation. But right now, our relationship with God is marred. It's hampered. God doesn't stop loving us. Indeed, we know nothing can separate us from the love of God. But he's displeased with us. Sometimes he disciplines us. And, and it goes further. Our effectiveness and fruitfulness can be impacted if we don't abide in Christ. Our relationship and unity with other Christians can be damaged. But here's some beautiful truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. There is hope. Yes, we sometimes fall, we sometimes slip, but there's hope in the gospel of restoration. There's hope and promise of forgiveness. If we'll come to God like David did on our knees and say, God, I sinned against you. God will restore. He is a God of restoration. He's a God of hope. The, the core of the Bible as we seek to grow in maturity is not to resign ourselves to the fact that, yeah, we'll let God down. That's just who I am. That's, that's how I was brought up. I'll just get on with it. No, 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 that's not the call of the Bible, not to wallow in it. And, and neither is it the call for us to fear our salvation if we know we've let God down, which we all do. Let's be honest. There are times when we do let God down. 
It's not about fearing our salvation. No, God is gracious. He's loving. He wants to come to us in our weakness and restore us and to deal with that sin again and again. What a wonderful psalm. What wonderful promises in this psalm we see. But I think there's some lessons as well. I think there's some lessons. We, we say, well, how did David get there? How did he get to that point in the first place? Well, I think there's three things that we just uh, need, to, need to understand about David that, that will hopefully help us in our own uh, ongoing battle to be holy before God and righteous before God. Well, we are righteous, but you know what I mean, to, to live a, a life that, that honors him. The first is this, that David was in the wrong place. He was in the wrong place on two counts. He should have been with his generals in the battle, um, but he seemed complacent about battle, as I've said already. And secondly, he shouldn't have been up on the roof when it was quite probable, and he'd probably seen it before, that he would be able to look down onto other houses and see women bathing. He had put himself in the wrong place. But I think our wrong place, it, it can start with complacency. Complacency about sin. Complacency, it's okay, it doesn't matter, God will forgive me. We can be there. We can get ourselves to the point. Um, maybe it's a wrongly understood theology of grace. We know, we know God is full of grace. He forgives us. He loves us. He's our Father. That's all true. That's all absolutely true. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But you know what? The other side of grace is that we say, because of what God has done for me, I'm going to give my life to him. It's not just about Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. If we take that seriously, if we take that side of grace seriously, we don't get complacent about sin. We don't get complacent about the way we're living. We say, because of what Jesus did, I want my life to honor him. I want everything that I do to be for him. I want the first thing in my life to be Jesus. That's what it talks about the other side of grace. If we don't get the two sides of grace, we can sometimes just become complacent about our sin. We lose sight of God's holiness and the fact that we're his ambassadors, his representatives, and we're called to be a people set apart for his glory. Maybe our wrong place isn't as obvious as David's, but surely social media, the internet can, can be a wrong place for us. There are, there are things that we can see there, images, attitudes, people. There are certainly things that if we go up onto the roof of, of social media, sometimes it's not a helpful place. But maybe wrong place for some of us is wrong people, just mixing with the wrong people who have attitudes that don't honor God. You know, there are times when we need to ask ourselves, as David should have asked himself when he was up on the roof, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Is that, is that where you are at the moment? Is there something you're involved with, you're engaged with, where God would say, or ask you to think, what am I doing here? I'm just exposing myself to unnecessary temptation, exposing myself to things that I shouldn't be seeing or looking at or hearing. Uh, it's a call to all of us to be constantly asking that. But David's second, the second thing to learn from David was that he pursued that temptation. Okay, so he was in the wrong place. He saw the wrong thing, but he could have just turned his back and walked away. He didn't do that. He pursued it. He took it to the next and to the next and to the next level. But again, the Bible gives us hope. You say, I've been there. I know, I, how can I do that? How can I resist? Always gets slipped. That's my weak spot. I can't cope with that. The Bible is very clear. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. 
And in Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide you with a way out. Amazing. God gives us that way out. And that leads me to the third and potentially a remedy that we can maybe put into practice. The third learning point from David is that he had a blind spot. He didn't see this sin on his own. It needed Nathan to point it out to him. I've got a friend, who um, Simon, who used to run the, uh, lead the church in uh, East Grinstead. Um, I was on the leadership team there with him. And, and we made a bit of a pact to each other to actually call out in one another if we saw attitudes that were wrong behaviors that were inappropriate for, for, for where we were. He used to call me his Muppet friend, not because he thought I was a Muppet, but he said, if you ever see me doing something stupid, tell me that I'm a Muppet. And, and that, was, I mean, that was a serious question. So we, we had made that, that, that commitment to one another. And there were times over the years where, where we would call each other out on things. It might have been an attitude. It might have been an act. It might have been something that was said or something that was done. Um, or, or even a, a lack of stepping into something that God had for us, a lack of taking risks, a lack of being in faith for something. That friendship is hugely valuable. We didn't spend hours and hours together, but we knew each other well enough just to say, Simon, David, actually, what are you doing here? And, and maybe for some of us, particularly if we've got an area where we know is a bit of a weak spot, we need to find a Nathan. We need to find someone who is bold enough to say to us, you've been such a muppet. Yeah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's not honoring God. It's not, it's not growing you in your walk with God. What are you doing here? So, so maybe that's a challenge for some of us that, that we need to think about that, pray about that. And, and so is there, is there someone where we can, we can actually... Uh, find that relationship and that friendship. David had a blind spot and he needed someone to point that out to him. So as we come to the end of of this psalm, I suppose the question is, if David's asking God to give him a broken, a contrite heart, well, what is that? He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise these things. Tim Keller, I, I, I've got so much time for Tim Keller. He says some such uh, helpful things. And, and actually, just a, by way of aside, there's a wonderful book which I'm working through at the moment. It's a, a year's devotional on the Psalms. It's called The Songs of Jesus. Interesting book on the Psalms, Songs of Jesus, fabulously drawing out so much truth and life, uh, le- life lessons from it. I'd highly recommend it. It's also called My Rock, My Refuge in a more recent publication. Anyway, that's a bit of an aside. Tim Keller says this, a contrite heart is a heart that knows how little it deserves, yet how much it has received. To know only the first truth is to be self-loathing. self-loathing. To know only the second is to be self-satisfied. And both kinds of hearts are self-absorbed. David is talking instead about hearts broken by costly, free grace. Knowing both how lost and how loved we are. It gets us out of ourselves, freeing us from the need to, do, to be constantly looking at ourselves. When our lips are opened... We don't speak of ourselves, but we speak of God's praise. In short, if we truly understand our salvation, we will praise God. We will lift our hearts and our hands in worship. C.H. Spurgeon, another, another quote. This is 150 years ago. Little chapel in Newington that he was preaching something like his 3,500th sermon. Amazing. But 
he, he spent the most of the sermon talking about the wonders of Jesus on the cross and, and, the, and the truth of salvation. And then he says this, if we truly grasp that salvation, all on earth who are saved and all in heaven who are saved will ascribe their salvation entirely to the ever-blessed God. Here is someone springing out from the common crowd and saying, I've heard of God's salvation. I will rejoice in it. I will rejoice in it. I will rejoice in your salvation. If there's any man Spurgeon goes on that in the world that has a right to have a bright, clear face and a flashing eye. It's a man whose sins are forgiven him and who's saved with God's salvation. Do you want to be a man or a woman with a flashing eye because you know God saved you? Do you want to be someone who, who automatically overflows with the joy of the salvation that you have? You know, sometimes our outreach um, our evangelism can feel like hard work. That's because we treat it as a job. If, if our evangelism is flowing over with the joy of our salvation, it becomes a joy, it becomes a privilege to share with others what we've known ourselves. Tim Keller again says, we have far more reason to sing for joy than anyone because we are loved with the costly love of the cross. Wow. David faced his sin he asked for God's forgiveness because he knew that he couldn't work it out for himself. He received that forgiveness and restoration and he went to the temple and worshipped God. Oh God, oh God of my salvation, he says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to worship, but I just want to encourage you to think of a couple of uh, specifics that come from Psalm 51, just in response. And then Christian, Christian Jamie will, will lead us in our worship. The first is this. Perhaps you've never responded to Jesus for the first time. You've never said, I'm, I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to make him my saviour and my Lord. Psalm 51 says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's an opportunity this morning to do that for the first time, for God to transform you, to fill you with his spirit, to let you know the joy of salvation for the first time. If that's you, I'd love to chat with you afterwards. Come and find me, come and find Philip, one of the other leaders here. We'd love to uh, lead you through that. But for many of us in the room who are, have been Christians for a long time, Verse 13 in Psalm 51 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And maybe for many of us, that's where we are this morning. We just need to say, God, would you just show me again the joy of your salvation? Would you show me again the thrill of, of what Jesus did on the cross and let me respond in worship to that? Let's bring our sin before God if we're conscious, if we're aware of anything specific that God will highlight to us, but let's ask God to stir us in our worship because of what Jesus did on the cross. Hallelujah.